Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Let me introduce you this morning to Jorgen Moltmann. He was born in Hamburg, Germany in the spring of 1926. He was bright from the very beginning, and by his early teenage years, he was planning to go to university to study physics or even astronomy. But Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, and Moltmann's life would forever change. Instead of going to school, by 1943, he had been drafted, forced into the German army. He was 16 years old. He manned an anti-aircraft gun under the constant bombardment of Allied shelling, narrowly escaping death multiple times. In 1945, his unit was forced to the front lines outside of Berlin. Not yet 18, shell-shocked, hungry, cold, demoralized. He surrendered to the first Allied forces that he met. Moltmann would spend the next three years in POW camps in Belgium, in Scotland, and in England. In those camps, he was overcome by the darkest depression. He described his experience as abandonment, hopelessness, and several of his peers in those camps took their own lives. Because of being forced to fight as children, because of being imprisoned far from home, and because of the dawning awareness of what they had been fighting for, they didn't believe that the Holocaust was taking place. They couldn't believe it. But their captors began nailing up large photos on the walls of the barracks. Photos of the atrocities at Auschwitz and other Jewish extermination camps. This can't be true. This is enemy propaganda, cried Moltmann to the Belgians and to the English. But it was true. And when Moltmann realized what his country had done, he wished then and there that he had died in combat. That that would be better than facing the shame of what he had participated in. At one of his lowest points, like something you would hear at a Billy Graham camp meeting, a chaplain gave Moltmann a copy of the Psalms and of the New Testament. He read the Bible for the first time. He arrived at Psalm 22, reinforced by Mark 15, the passage we have heard today, A Jewish laborer turned rabbi, hanging on a cross of execution, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jürgen Moltmann says that he did not discover God, but that God discovered him. God in the person of Christ came to him in his abandonment, in his hopelessness, to agonize with him. Quoting, In Jesus I found a brother who knows what it means to suffer 
Here is a God who understands me. Moltmann returned to Germany, turned his mind from physics to faith, and became one of the greatest theological voices of the 20th and now 21st centuries as Moltmann is still living today, spry and eager still at 96 years young. As Moltmann was walking into a POW camp west of Berlin, south of the city, another prisoner was walking to the gallows. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and Nazi resistor, was executed at Flossenburg concentration camp after years of imprisonment. His remains are likely in this ash pile here covered in snow that you see in the photo. In the days leading up to his death, he had written and shared correspondence with friends and family, and he wrote this in one of his last letters. We suffer at the hands of a godless world. So do not try to cover up the godlessness with religion. God has been pushed out of this world and onto the cross. God is weak. God is powerless in this world. And in precisely this way, God is at our side to help us. Christ helps us not by virtue of His power, but by virtue of His suffering. Religion directs people to the power of God. But the Bible directs people toward the suffering of God. Only the suffering of God can help us now. Only the suffering God can help us now. Jürgen Moltmann, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and others, one of them an unwitting participant in, and the other a courageous martyr of the Nazi atrocities, have built a post-Auschwitz, post-Holocaust view of God. Yes, history has been filled with injustice. It is filled with savagery, abomination, but never on the genocidal scale of what happened to the Jewish people in the 1930s and the 1940s. Never has there been such systematic, efficient, far-reaching, wholesale murder, and it took place and was perpetuated in a, quote, Christian nation. It was baptized Lutherans and Catholics and Baptists and Protestants that committed the atrocities of the Holocaust. And in light of this, our understanding of God has to be and had to be radically and critically evaluated. And out of this evaluation has come a deeper discovery of God's solidarity with suffering. It's always been there, but never has it been more needed and more necessary to understand. Never is it more timely than the day in which we live as we see the suffering around us in this world. God joins those who suffer. God is actually with those who have been abandoned. God is in the injustice, not as the cause, but in communion with those mistreated. God, in Christ, incited human violence against Himself. He brought brutality, prejudice, shame, humiliation onto Himself. 
and in so doing, joined every suffering soul who has ever lived. The murdered, the raped, the falsely accused, the pimped, the enslaved, the colonized, the tortured. Quoting my favorite Bob Dylan song again. The refugees on the unarmed road of flight. Every underdog soldier in the night. The lonesome hearted lover with too personal a tale. Each gentle soul misplaced inside a jail. The aching ones whose wounds cannot be nursed. The countless confused, accused, misused, strung out ones. And worse, for every hung up person in the whole wide universe. God has come to them in their pain, and they have been brought into God, the sufferings of God, as God's partners. I could go on forever now, I think, but this will be the last talk in this series on the cross. Maybe. We have been trying to solve a riddle, untangle our minds so that we can understand the death of Jesus as somehow communicating the love of God. And I have tried, I've really tried to communicate this message. And I feel honestly like, like I have failed, that I have fallen short, but who wouldn't fall short of such a task? And I think that's why I'm having a hard time moving on from the subject. Nevertheless, I will move on after today, but not without returning once again to the love of God as the energizing force behind the cross of Jesus. As I understand it, the cross was not an act of God's vengeance against Jesus for our sake. It was not a means of soothing or placating God's wrath. It was not a device employed to resolve God's inner psychosis. It was God entering the world in Jesus, not so Jesus would change God's mind about us, but that we would change our minds about God. Because our understanding of God has not been bold enough. It has not been radical enough. It has not been loving enough. I'll quote Jürgen Moltmann. To comprehend God in the crucified Jesus requires a revolution in the concept of God. God became a God-forsaken man. God is the great companion, the fellow sufferer, the one who understands. Hear that text again today. The text that saved Jürgen Moltmann's life. My God, why have you forsaken me? It is God accusing God. It is God who is now God forsaken. It is God who is God less. It is God abandoned by God. It is God dying without the aid of God. God voluntarily, willingly, and lovingly enters into tormented sufferings. It is God fully immersed in the human experience. Now you tell me what is more human than love and suffering. They will always go together. Because if you love anything, you have to open yourself up to be vulnerable to that thing or that person. There is no love without vulnerability, without just bearing your heart, knowing that that person 
that you love could take your heart and crush it. But if you close your chest up, if you close your emotions up, you will protect yourself, but you will never experience love. The suffering of God is God coming to humanity and opening and bearing His soul. And this is union. This is solidarity. When we suffer, when we have no answers, when our prayers are ignored, when circumstances and people have conspired against us, when we have been hurt in ways that we never thought possible, when we hang suspended on our own cross of crucifixion, we turn and look and see that it is God on His cross hanging beside us. Hanging with us. Having joined us. This is the revolution. Because of His great love for His creation, God has come to us and coming to us results in suffering with us. Eberhard Jungel, another German theologian, shaped by his experience of World War II and the following Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe says it like this, any Christian confession of faith must be compatible with the death cry of Jesus or it does not confess faith in God. A man who captured this ethos with his life, though he was Jewish and not Christian, was Eli Weissel. And I have spoken of him many, many times here over the years. Weissel was a Romanian Jew, and when the rumors of Nazi atrocity reached his small village, no one believed it. Nothing this horrible could ever happen, his rabbi told him, because God would never let something like this happen. And then one day, it wasn't rumors that arrived at his little Romanian village, it was the Nazis. And he and his family were taken to Auschwitz. His mother and his sisters died immediately in the oven. His father was worked to death in the weeks that followed. And young Weissel found himself 15 years old, alone, in hell on earth. He witnessed multiple executions. One in particular broke through the hardness of that place and stayed with him his entire life. It was the hanging of a little boy, a child, whose two bunkmates had been found in possession of smuggled weapons. The SS condemned the three to death in front of all 10,000 prisoners in the camp. And I will read from Weissel's memoir, Night. It is not easy to read. It is not easy to hear. But let us not turn away. Three victims mounted onto chairs. Three necks placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults. The child was silent. Where is God? Someone behind me asked. At a sign from the head of camp, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence. On the horizon, the sun was setting. We were weeping. When the march past began, 
the two adults were no longer alive. But the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. For more than half an hour, he struggled. He was still alive when I passed by and was forced to look at him. Behind me, the same man asked, Where is God? Where is God now? And I answered, God is hanging here on these gallows. And when Weissel first wrote those words as a young man, just ten years after that traumatic day, he meant that to him, God was dead. His life plunged into atheism, and who can blame him? He wrote, never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget even if I am condemned to live as long as God. By middle age, his perspective had changed. Quote, if I had to rewrite it now, I wouldn't change a single word, he said of his memoir. But now he understood the death of God differently. He says God did in fact die on those gallows, but it was not the end of God's existence. God was in, God was with, God was united to that child in suffering, in protesting solidarity against evil. And the child was brought in to the very communion of God's suffering. And so a journalist once asked Weisel, do you still have faith in God? And now as an old man, look at him there. After all he has suffered, a smile still on that radiant face. And he answered with a whole lot of chutzpah. He said, I would be within my rights to give up faith in God. And I could invoke six million reasons why. But I am incapable now. Of straying from the path of my ancestors. We must not give in to cynicism. My wounded faith endures. Ironically, it is only a wounded faith that will survive in this world. Because a wounded faith has tested all the pat responses and easy explanations and found them to be empty and presses on for more. A wounded faith is rooted in real life practicality. It exists in the hardened reality of a godless world. A wounded faith does not settle for t-shirt slogans, coffee cup quotes, or too blessed to be stressed Instagram accounts. A wounded faith has cried. A wounded faith has bled. It has suffered. A wounded faith has shook its fist at heaven. It has swore. It has cursed. It has asked the impossible questions. It has demanded better answers. It has raged against the world and against God. But somewhere along the way, and it might take decades to get there, a wounded faith discovers that God is wounded too. And God is just not wounded in the hands and feet of Jesus. God is wounded to His very heart and soul because God cares that much.
and enters into human suffering. For centuries, theologians have lauded what they call the apatheia of God. Nice Greek word for you this morning. And many still do. It's one of the characteristics of God, we are told. Now, I want you to look at that word real quick. What does that word look like to you in English? Of course, apathy. The idea is that God is so transcendent, so other, so vastly beyond the triviality of this world that God is untouchable, that God is without emotion, that God is without passions, that God is incapable of being affected by outside influences. Nothing makes God happy. Nothing makes God sad. Nothing makes God suffer. No way. Because God is at peace with God's own being and immune from such things. But to comprehend God in the crucified Jesus requires a revolution in the concept of God and none more so than here. So to speak of a God who cannot suffer is to speak of a God who cannot sympathize and understand. To believe in a God who is indifferent and unaffected is to believe in a God who is deaf and blind and callous. To accept a God who is only in it for God's self and the fawning praises of the faithful is to accept the fact that we have largely been left on our own. To surrender to a God incapable of being wounded by the vulnerabilities of love, is to surrender to an idol at best or to the devil himself at worst. And I confess to you that if not for Jesus, that's where I would be. If not for the suffering love of God made abundantly clear to us by Christ, my own wounded faith would have turned to atheism long ago. Because a suffering God is the only way, pardon me, that I can make any sense out of the shit that goes on in this world. With William Sloan Coffin, I believe this, and here I stand, and I can do no other. That in this world, God gives us, quote, minimum protection. It's rough out there. But He gives us maximum support. We do not get answers. We get presents. Because God in suffering love has in Christ come to join us in our sufferings. So when we suffer, it is not a sign of God's disapproval or withdrawal. When a person suffers, it is God actually arriving in the pain to join that beloved soul in the suffering and to unite them with the very soul of God Himself. And it is an invitation to us. You look at the suffering of this world and you say, where is God? God is in that suffering. And that suffering is our invitation to go to God. You remember Jesus talking about the least of these? As you do to the least of these, you have done it unto me. That's exactly what this angle of the cross teaches us. Anywhere there is trouble... Anywhere there are tears, anywhere there is injustice, anywhere there are self-inflicted wounds, anywhere there is pain, anywhere there is suffering, God has arrived. And we are called 
to meet God there. For here is a God who understands. And only the suffering God can help us now. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.